Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Postmodern Conservative series, I am joined by my friends Carl Eric Scott and Paul Seaton for a discussion of Pierre Manon, the greatest French thinker now alive, a great critic and champion of liberalism and democracy, respectively, paradoxical figure, a very mild man who is very learned and at the same time has made very strong statements against the EU, against the corruption of elites that no longer love their peoples or lead them in a political way, and who indeed is making this strong claim that we now have a apolitical life, a politics of depoliticization. We will be doing a series at the ACF on Pierre Manon with leading academics, translators and thinkers who have seen the wonders of this thinker and what he has to offer Americans. We hope to persuade you that uh, Manon is another great Frenchman analyzing democracy and therefore of great interest to America, like Tocqueville was two centuries ago. But first of all, we should introduce Pierre Manon and his thought. Pierre Manon was born in 1949, and so he came of age during the madness of the late 60s. But instead of the madness of May 1968, what attracted him was the great political thinker Raymond Daron, the noblest, most serious student of politics and the most admirable liberal in France in the 20th century. But unlike Raymond Aron, Manon was not so interested in either politics as a columnist, as a commentator on events, un spectateur engagé, as Aron famously styled himself, nor on sociology. He was interested in political theory, and Aron introduced him to Leo Strauss, the greatest writer of political philosophy in the 20th century, and that seems to have spoken to Manon's theoretical bent his lifelong pursuit of foundational questions in political philosophy led him to studies and confrontations with the great modern philosophers, the founders and champions of liberalism, and also with the intellectual currents and political movements that even in ignorance follow these great modern philosophers. Manon is unique in Europe for his dedication to political philosophy, to the study of the greatest writers, and for his opposition to the ideas of liberalism while championing democracy and politics. And so we will be talking about a man well worth talking about, but a man whom we invite you to read with the guidance we can offer. Paul, where should we start with Pierre Manon? Sure. You know, we've all had the thought, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a seventh letter? Well, actually, we do. But darn it, it says, uh, I'm not going to write my philosophy down. In one of the dialogues, the chief character says, writing is bad for memory and bad for understanding. Okay. However, with Manat, we actually do have an author who comments on his own journey, his own thoughts, and his own writings. And so I'd say that's a precious, it's not a unique unique, but it's a precious uh, starting point for getting into Menant. His 2010 book in French, it was called The Political Gaze or The Political Look on Things. And then it was nicely translated by dear friends of ours, uh, Ralph Hancock, with the assistance of Daniel Mahoney, called Seeing Things Politically. So uh, Manon's a political philosopher, and since he was 15, 
He's been trying to figure out the world as it presents itself to us. And then us, you know, is a very variegated category, but he's how the world presents it, itself to us. And he thinks, well, first of all, we distinguish between the human and the non-human, the mathematical. But fundamentally, what we're attracted to is the political articulations of the human world. And that's our first sketch of the world of meaning and striving in which we live. Okay, so his political look, Le Regard Politique, is his 2010 book where he kind of did a retrospect guided by some very informed and benevolent questions by a student of his, but also Dan Mahoney provided questions that the fellow could ask. And Menant, and I am coming to a close of this initial statement of uh, Pierre, uh, in that book in 2010, Pierre said, well, really, there have been two broad phases to my thought or how I've articulated the human world. And the first one, Titus, you mentioned already, it has as a central text, this book, The Intellectual History of Liberalism, because the political world for him was initially and fundamentally liberal democracy in its French and more broadly European version in the great contest with Soviet communism. So it was the Cold War. And so he wanted to understand the stakes of that great contest and the nature of the regime he was born in that articulated him as a human being, as a citizen. You've got rights. <laughs> and religion can be a private matter, but we're not going to let it be public. <laughs> so the liberal democratic order in which he lived, comparable, not the same as the American, kind of told him who he was, how you ought to order our common life together, and why you should defend it against its, well, I'm going to say doppelganger, frere enemy, uh, Soviet communism, and we can come back to that. And so first thing is try to understand liberal democracy. So his first phase was just that, trying to understand liberal democracy. And he wrote four books, and you've mentioned couple of them, there are two others that had as their common focus, uh, liberal democracy. The second phase began when the Cold War was over and communism was no longer a mortal threat externally, although you did have residues internally, but a new political circumstance or situation occurred, which centered around the nation state. You know, the former Soviet bloc countries, they had to get their autonomy, their sovereignty, their liberal democracies up and running. In the West, Western Europe, you had the integration of Europe. And then so between the two parts, the, the question was, uh, what's the status of the nation state in this new liberalcratic dispensation? So he kind of continued his liberalism studies, but in the phase from 94 to 2010, the nation became the central contemporary political issue. And he kind of focused in on that significantly in the works of the second period. And then uh, I'll end by saying, uh, Titus, earlier you had said that with liberalism, he did start with, to use the phrase he applied to Machiavelli, he did start with the fecundity of evil in understanding this new form of politics, liberal democracy, where instead of trying to pursue a good, you avoid an increasing package of evils <laughs> uh, from violent death to disrespect or whatever. 
So I'd say that evil really did have a real prominence in that long first period. But in the second period, I'd say he didn't deny what he had said, but kind of the positive goods of political life became more and more of a theme in connection with the nation, understood not as the summum good or not even a particular focus on the common good, but the nation for him was where the political animal for centuries had brought together, you know, warm words and ardent deeds to form a community that was an adventure in history and, you know, had rivals next door and pretty close. So I would say that between the two phases, there's a certain prominence of evil because of the focus on liberalism, trying to get us out from the wars of religion or economic scarcity or disrespect. <laughs> Just think of Kant. Uh, and then in the second phase, the good became more of a theme, but in connection with, you mentioned it earlier, this political form, which is the nation state, but the nation state took its place within the other political forms that constituted Western Civ. Paul, I'd like to just ask you, what would your response be to a person who kind of just wanted to label Monat in a quick way? I mean, maybe what would your preferred label be? But how do you react to the person who says, well, the way to understand Pierre Monat is he's, you know, a kind of Catholic Straussian. Well, I mean, we know what an important influence on him was the great French thinker, great French liberal Raymond Aron. But, you know, if someone were to give you that kind of quick and dirty labeling of a knot, what is right about that? What is wrong about that? Sure. I think the first thing to say is up here, again, he always takes his bearings by the human world, the political world, which already has its labels. So he doesn't resist labels and therefore being labeled. You know, you, yeah. that's, you need to start there. And so he's conservative when the liberals are unhinged or socialist, but he's a socialist when, you know, they say the national community needs a safety net or something like that. But I'd say on the European scene right now, yeah, he's conservative because he's a defender of the nation state. And he thinks that internationalism today is anti-political, anti-human, anti-Western Civ, anti-God, anti-religion. So broadly speaking, he's conservative, understood more in terms of what he's against, but what he's trying to conserve is this European invention and precious constellation of centuries of human activity, the nation state. So conservative in that dual sense of uh, not an internationalist, but you know, within artisans of the nation, he's kind of a party of three. <laughs> and he, he's really not a populist. He's not a nationalist in 99% of the understandings of that terms on offer today. Uh, he's a Catholic, so that's another label. But I'd say Catholicism sensitizes him to the place and the role of the church in European history. But he has deep reservations about whether the church, he thinks it knows sinful man and redeemed man, but he believes that Catholicism doesn't know man the citizen. And he is a very firm critic of just about every 
Catholic Church position. As far as I know, he takes no bearings from Catholic social thought, and he's one of the most acute critics of the contemporary Pope today. So Catholic, yes, but he's not checking very many of the Catholic politics boxes from Catholic social thought to pro-Francis. And then the Straussian thing is, I'll just go real quick, Menant early on was unintelligible apart from Leo Strauss, because Leo Strauss revived the question of, are the moderns really true? We take it for granted because we live in the orders that they conceived and then brought into bearing. But Leo Strauss gave articulation to a lot of uneasiness that any number of people had in modern societies, uh, you know, in the run-up to the Cold War, during the Cold War, after the Cold War. So Strauss helped articulate that. But Pierre never understood and never agreed with the high Straussian position that the philosopher is the only real human being, that the <laughs> philosophical way of life is constituted by looking down on the contemptible prejudices and aspirations of non-philosophers. And in part, you could say his Catholicism inoculated him against that anti-humanitarian view. But he also just has a common sense. One is I've never met a human being like that. And the other one is the closest ones I met to that, they played with kids and they were concerned about contemporary politics and the fate of their people, whether it be the Jews or uh, whatnot. So he's not a high Straussian at all. So, Paul, Manon is deeply involved in the nation state, as you say, and to an extent he is a Democrat, but he is also, as a student of political philosophy, very able to show that from the beginning there is something in modern political philosophy that has great power, but buys that great power at a, a price that might just be too steep. So Manon somehow is, on the one hand, a very reasonable man, eminently reasonable, but on the other hand, he is a deeply learned student of political philosophy and therefore aware that what we call the Hobbesian state of nature, which in some sense is the basis of modern political ideas of rights and uh, sovereignty and representation, is completely bogus. It is not possible for a serious man today to support Hobbes. Even more so, he points out that even before we got the theory of the state with Hobbes, the theory of human action we get with Machiavelli is deeply, deeply flawed. The, today, of course, because we are coming politically unhinged, very many people are complaining about modern politics. Liberalism has a very bad reputation now. It's hard to say whether it's as bad as it deserves or better or worse, but it's certainly clear that people do not grasp well what is right and what is wrong in liberalism. And Manon seems like a rare attempt to set that straight. This is what I mean when I say that there is a rare combination of great erudition and eminently reasonable attitudes to politics. Somehow he might be able to agree with many of the critics of liberalism today, that there is something not just in the crazy ideas of today, but in the crazy attitudes that started hundreds of years ago that we should really be suspicious of. The individual as such, that is now the individual who creates willfully his own identity in a rather mad way, there's a very powerful connection that goes through centuries of philosophical thought. It's not just some crazy people today or some power-hungry elites. There's a deep problem. So maybe Manon can help set people straight, show them 
where they're right and where they're wrong in their opposition to liberalism and in a certain way in their defense of liberalism too, at least from the practical point of view. So can you help us see more clearly how does Manon look at this problem of modernity? What's wrong with us that we don't see things politically when we should, as he says, more or less after Aristotle? And what would be of help to guide reflection on the one hand and action on the other hand in this incredibly confused situation? Fantastic question. I think, Titus, I have kind of three steps of thought. That doesn't mean I'm going to speak for 30 minutes, but I do have three steps. And one will be kind of framing it your way, my way, just for a framework for what you just said. Then I do want to return to intellectual history of liberalism because I think that will kind of nicely illustrate the general framework that I want to give. And then I may have an American coda at the end because one really needs to distinguish Pierre from American thought and Americans and our concerns. And all too often, Americans just say, what would he say about us today? He doesn't defend our view of rights and therefore something. <laughs> so so I think there needs to be kind of an American coda. But I'm sure you guys will smile as soon as I say this. It seems to me that there are two pairs that do and should frame every political philosopher's thinking, theory and practice, which you've just ended with, and then moderation and radicality. And you need to know where in the those four coordinates your discourse is or your attention is. You know, we can talk theoretically and we can talk theoretically in a radical way. <laughs> so we can read Hobbes and say he severed the individual from every natural and supernatural good and reconstructed our humanity on the basis of this abstraction, which Pierre has a very interesting genesis of. He thinks it's the distillation of the effectual truth of the wars of religion. So theory and practice, and then let's go radical, and then let's be moderate. And certainly politics by and large should be the domain of moderation. (laughs) And if you're going to bring in radicality, man, (laughs) caveat everybody, and so many of the radical experiments, past and contemporary, presuppose, to quote Arone, that man and society can be transformed at a stroke. It's not going to happen. Okay, so Pierre, I think those are four coordinates for him. He also does have the coordinates of nature, not so much grace as the effectual presence of religion in the world, which is the various churches. And in European history, for the longest time, it would be the Catholic Church. And then, you know, later in modernity, you'd have other churches. So he does have other pairs, uh, nature and not so much grace, but the institutions of grace. And then I do think history is a essential category of his, but it's not historicist, but it's not simply subordinate to natural categories. And that's a huge theoretical and thorny issue. So if you're talking liberalism theoretically and radically, it eschewed the good. It said, look, the citizen and the believer, they contended for centuries in Europe over which good was the true good and which one should be the sovereign good. And we got into this gigantomachia and, you know, it exploded with the wars of religion. So liberalism just said, eschew the good, 
embrace the known evils and then kind of inoculate the authoritative regime from any claims of the good and privatize them. So that's liberalism theoretically, but it's a theory that addressed a theoretical and a political or practical situation and dynamic, a Mexican standoff that Europeans had not been able to extricate themselves. Now, it does seem to me that Pierre basically thinks at some point, somebody was going to try to get Europeans out of that Mexican standoff. But historically, it turned out to be Machiavelli, and he's going to be the decisive trailblazer. But in principle, Europe could not have continued with the dialectic that it had. That's liberalism theoretically. And, you know, from an Aristotelian or from a Christian or biblical point of view, that theoretical liberalism is just deeply false. <laughs> it's a false anthropology, fundamentally. That would be the way to put it. And then you could talk more about the derivations from that anthropology, you know, a free market or representative government or human sovereignty and not sovereignty from above. However, if you look at European history politically and practically, that theoretical injection eventually in 1776, 1789, and then much later, it produced decent human regimes that we call mixed. And, you know, Titus, you're great on the mixtures that constitute everything from cinema to European history to, you know, our current battle between the oligarchs and the populace today. Uh, so practically speaking, liberalism eventuated in viable, decent regimes with the precious freedoms, with unprecedented prosperity, with upward mobility. Coterminously, all of those advances had astute critics who said, you know, upward mobility deracinates people, leads to hypocrisy, and you can have, whether it be Rousseau or Flaubert, it's not a simple happy story or success story, but in the main, you know, it's not horrible. Okay, so that's looking at liberalism in its fruits or its works in individual regimes after revolutions, either sober or radical, and then finally tamped down somewhat. For example, theoretically, separation of church and state presupposes a nature of religion and a nature of man, and as it were, make severs religion from man. It's not part of man's nature. Now, subsequent liberals, the French liberals, will try to amend that, but the early ones said no. And so, you know, Menant will challenge or question that, but he does think that the separation of church and state prudently and, you could say, democratically applied separation of church and state is a precious acquisition. It got European man out of the wars of religion. It got him out of the Mexican standoff. So, you know, he's for that. On the other hand, he doesn't like radical secularization. He thinks, though, that the regime's articulation of the relationship between man and religion obscures more about man and religion and their internal relationship than it illumines. So practically, it's a great achievement in terms of forming citizens' eyes. They really can't see religion as a communal or social fact. They're not reinforced in their own hearts about the natural 
you know, desire for the infinite that Tocqueville talked about, or for the infinitely beautiful. Can I just interject yeah. here a little bit, Paul? Of course, take, take your time. Yeah. One vivid example for our readers of what you're talking about with the way in which liberalism, secularism, it might, at its foundational theoretical level, you could say will accomplish lots of good things. You could go back to, say, Madison's memorial and remonstrance, something like that. But, you know, he had this book that, that Ralph Hancock translated a few years back called Beyond Radical Secularism. And there he really presents how, in his own France, um, so many people coming at things from a liberal, you might say, liberal theoretical perspective, just unable to articulate the basics of, of the situation, the, the challenge that French society as a whole faces from Islam. And so, I mean, that would be a book if someone wants to get into Manant's thought and, and to see right away how it applies to some contemporary issues, it would be a very helpful book. So sorry to interject, but I just, it seemed so, a natural place. You know, I started and we've been talking about his first two phases, 72 to 94, and then to 210, Beyond Radical Secularism, a 2015 book. And there have been two books where Manant, the political philosopher, explicitly and deliberately entered the public forum, and he presented himself not so much as a political philosopher, but as a citizen. And in these two books, he engaged in a deliberation about what we citizens of France, we citizens of Europe, ought to do about two distinct but interconnected common problems. And the 2015 book was occasioned and primarily focused on what should we French citizens do, what should we European citizens do in the face of the Muslims among us. And since it's a touchy topic, he says we can't expel them and we actually let them into our countries under certain terms. And our, what we need to do now is forge new bonds so that we can form a new kind of national community. I do want to say one thing about Manant on liberalism. I think it was Mansfield who said of Machiavelli that a bold man can hide his boldness by his bold statements. Now, Pierre's neither Harvey Mansfield nor Machiavelli. But Pierre, on one hand, he will do the theoretical analysis of the modern philosophers and do excavations to their radical and disturbing thoughts, whether it be anthropological or about religion or the soul, whatever it is. But in a number of places, he takes you to a vista and he allows you to peer further and to take the next steps into the issue. And I'm going to give you a quick example of what I mean. But in other words, this is not esoteric writing. This is a little bit of moderation, even when you're doing major theory. At the beginning of his 2001 book, in English, it's called The World Beyond Politics, but it's his 2001 survey of the Western world on the eve of 9-11 major political philosophy. And in the introduction, he says, you know, I'm trying to articulate the human world, which is a liberal democratic world. And he said, now, theoretically, as citizens of liberal democracies, we believe in science. And then practically, we believe in democracy understood as freedom, understood as choosing your own values. 
So it's the theoretical and practical attitudes that constitute the average, but the essential citizens of modern democracy, contemporary democracy. Well, when you read his analyses of modern science and liberal democracy, both of them say that modern democracy is based on an anthropology of radical atheistic humanism. Man is God theoretically, in principle, he can illumine the cosmos and dispel all mystery and master and control it. Now you say Descartes, and he's coming up later, but, and then he quotes Claude Lafour saying that democracy is every election we recreate or decide on the conditions of our common existence as though neither nature nor the paternal gods provided any indications or binding things. Well, Pierre doesn't use the term radical atheistic humanism, but it's there. Now, at this point, I think we do need an American coda because Pierre, he's looking at the rights of man and citizen in France. They didn't have founding fathers the way we do. They didn't have the Anglo-Saxon theoretical incoherence, but practical wisdom stuff going on. So we're different. And I think Pierre is not as informed about America as we would like. In fact, I know that. But when he looks at European democracy and democratic theory, he sees the establishment of the emancipation of man from nature and from God, and especially God's vehicle, the church. In intellectual history of liberalism, he said that in 2001, he indicated that. He didn't want to freak out his readers, you know, in 2001, saying, really, you guys are a bunch of closet or tacit or unaware atheists. But that's what he points to. And then as you go through it and looking at other facets of contemporary liberal democracy, with that in mind, you see textures or dimensions of his analyses that aren't literally there, but they're there there. Now, that leads to the question of, is liberalism necessarily going to turn into secularism? Is it necessarily going to turn into radical atheism? Well, here I think you may want to make a distinction between the logic of an idea or an attitude or a set of ideas, the logic of them, and then a whole bunch of other factors. This does lead us to Peter Lawler's famous phrase. <laughs> Building better than they knew? Or keeping Locke in the Locke's box. That's right. That's more his. The, the, the building better than they knew actually goes back to Orestes Brownson. I mean, isn't part of the issue here, Paul, that, you know, Pierre points to kind of a second wave of liberalism that Americans are familiar with through Tocqueville, but he also makes a great deal of Constant, who I know you've studied quite a bit, and a little bit of Guizot. And so there's a way in which, insofar as Manant is, is with those guys, we, we might even call Manant a liberal himself. Yeah, two things. In an intellectual history of liberalism, he made a point of describing liberalism before, and then very characteristically Frenchly, he said, before the revolution. Right. And then liberalism after. And liberalism after, which would include Burke, but it had French liberals too. Those people looked at the works of the revolution and said, my God, in my name, 
they did those god awful things. Yeah. And so they had to rethink my name. <laughs> Manant adds, uh, they did it with the assistance of Rousseau, which was both a plus and a minus, so that it included mm -hmm. more soul depth to the liberal individual, but it did characterize society as just a prison, history as more necessitated than perhaps, you know, you may want to articulate it. Menard's lock, you know, that's the closest point of contact with the American founding and American liberalism. Menard's lock, first of all, privileged the economic animal over the political animal, and that's the teaching of an intellectual history of liberalism. And then in uh, The City of Man came out in 1994, his lock is the autonomous self-owner. You know, it's, it's Michael right. Zucker's view of uh, Locke. And neither one of those are what the American founders held to, much less what their contemporary conservative defenders believe about the founding and pretty much about Locke. So I think it's a little unfortunate that a number of American conservatives, their first reading of Pierre is an intellectual history of liberalism in that Locke chapter. And it's just clearly inadequate to understand Locke from their point of view, and it kind of sets up a low Locke that they're trying to fight against, you know, in, in our battles. Yeah, that, that seems right. I mean, I, I think it's worth mentioning, though, that the book that we've been talking the most about, Intellectual History of Liberalism, it really very useful for you if you're a master's or doctoral student in political philosophy gives you a vivid review of the classic, you know, Hobbes to, to Locke to Rousseau kind of passage. So it's certainly just to be recommended on those terms alone. But that's an e excellent point that it's not maybe the full Menantian teaching about Locke or, or not maybe the best one. It doesn't help maybe American conservatives enough with all of the issues we inevitably have with Locke's legacy. Yeah, back in the day when I was in grad school, the three go-to books were the Strauss-Cropsey Reader, which I think is still worth doing, uh, Menon's Intellectual History of Liberalism. And then there was a book by a woman. Unfortunately, her name escapes me right now, but it's one of those compact surveys. So I do think, you know, if you want to understand Menant as he understands himself, the seeing things politically is the best place to start. It's a great read. It has the conversational character to it because he was responding to a very informed interlocutor, a former student of his. It has sallies of wit and goes back and forth between biography and personalities and engagement with books and then the contemporary scene and then broadens out to his view of Western Civ. So I, I like the French phrase, tout EA, T-O-U-T-Y. EST, 2TA, everything's there, except the part that's left out. That's okay. But early on, I mean, I think in his first period, his, his best book, and it really is a work of precocious genius, is his book on Tocqueville, Tocqueville and the Nature of Democracy. Carl and Titus, I'm going to invite you to share what you like about it, but I'll just point out the title. It focuses on Tocqueville, a little bit biographically, but it's mainly interested in Tocqueville as political thinker. So Menant, he's a bit of a phenomenologist. He wants to know how the phenomena show up, and he also wants to know how different types of minds articulate the phenomena. And so 
Tocqueville saw so well, and he doesn't fit into any of our categories, how on earth did that mind come about? And so, you know, Carl, you've studied an awful lot about his intellectual mm -hmm. development biography. We talked about that, but Tocqueville and the nature of democracy, and that meant that democracy has a nature. And that is, it has a core, an essence, a structure, a stability, which is extremely dynamic, but it has a core that is identifiable and permanent. And once you get it, man, you can start predicting, you can start extrapolating the progress of democracy. And I will say, after his 82 book, he'd done that homework, and he got Tocqueville on the nature of democracy. Thereafter, when he looked at post-Cold War democracy, he was tracking it in a Tocquevillian vein. Tocqueville had given him a powerful framework for the development of MERS, the development of relationships, the de development or the undoing of relationships, <laughs> stuff like that. And then he also brought in Aristotle. So Tocqueville and Aristotle are his two great political philosophical guides for the ongoing adventure of democracy after the collapse of communism. I actually would like to hear, you know, when you first came across Tocqueville and Nature of Democracy, Titus, I don't know if you've read it recently, but Carl? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing to say is it's probably the very best book on Tocqueville. It's short, but it shows some interpretive problems with democracy in America, and it quickly gets you to see what the key issues are. It just does that in a way that's more vivid than, in, than really anyone else. There's, I mean, we're all fans of Peter Lawler here, and his book, which is sadly out of print on, on Tocqueville, would really be the only contender, I think, in my mind. I mean, there's a lot of you know fine books on Tocqueville. The, Har the Mansfield Winthrop introduction in their edition is essential. There's like a gal, Cheryl Welch, who's done some fine work. Many, many other names we could name. Schlieffer that you did the trans helped do the translation for. But Tocqueville and Nature of Democracy, really, he really is very careful about getting you to think about these two key areas, the kind of dogmatic side of democracy, the dogma of popular sovereignty, and the social side, which is the, the democratic social state. And getting you to see that Tocqueville is sort of presenting both those things as, as the key to understanding um, democracy's nature. And, you know, it, it works out well with the chapter that, that he has on Tocqueville in Intellectual History of Liberalism. So I really can't speak, you know, any more highly of it. I would also just add this, because I'm just, you know, Paul's laying out some of the theoretical groundwork here, but I just do want to sort of emphasize for our listeners that you know, in my mind, Manat, when I think of like the big conveyors of political wisdom, the, the names that come to me most reliably are Aristotle, Tocqueville, maybe Montesquieu. I'm a, I'm a little less certain. I, I haven't studied him enough to really know. And Manat, those are really the four in my book. I mean, obviously, you need to study other things, but these seem to be sages who really are able to do that moving from the theoretical to the practical and also the radical of the moderate that, that Paul was talking in a very powerful way. So I can say more about the particular book, Tocqueville and Nature of Democracy, if you want, but those just seem to be my initial thoughts. 
yeah, maybe we should talk about this a bit more, right? Tocqueville is the connection between America and France, at least for reasonable people, and of course people of good taste, like uh, you, you gentlemen, and that matters in a way for Manon himself, and as Carl, you suggested, deserves to be much better known than he is. That's also the situation of Tocqueville in the 19th century. He was not any kind of success in America for obvious reasons, but he was not a success in France either. You would say that in the 19th century, the, the major political competition among the philosophers was between Tocqueville and Marx. And Marx is a vulgar thinker. And precisely for that reason, it would seem, he ran away with that century. Tocqueville had next to no influence on French thought in the 19th century or democracy. You could say through his mill friendship in England, maybe. No, nothing. Only in the 20th century did he become a subject of serious study to people who were not academics, but serious people, thinkers on political questions and philosophical questions. That's one reason why we don't have a lot of great writers writing on Tocqueville. In a way, that threatens to be Manon's fate too. When people think of French intellectuals, he is not on that list, and for very good reasons. Those people are imposters at the best of times. Whereas Manon is a serious thinker, and that seems to have cost him a reputation. So, somehow, reflection on democracy at the noblest level gets you anonymity. <laughs> That's not good advertising, but happily, Tocqueville did earn some of the reputation he richly deserves, and it might mean that people are, in despite of the evidence of one century and a half, in another century and a half, more interested in figuring out exactly, as you say, Carl, that democracy seems to mean two very different things. One of them has to do with the ability in ordinary life to organize associations and to reorganize the family in a somewhat less hierarchical way, and even religion, of course. But on the other hand, it also means a continuous temptation to simplify ideas. Of course, these are not entirely separable. The democratic thought of simplifying ideas, of breaking down barriers, is uh, in relation to the democratic politics of breaking down hierarchies. On the other hand, the democratic ability to associate has very much in common with the, the part of democratic thought that stresses the freedom to act, that stresses that the will is in a certain sense indeterminate. There are many modern categories of thought, and look at the Germans and talk about spontaneity and so on and so forth, but the freedom of the will, the indeterminacy of the will is crucial in ordinary life. And Manon's reflection on these things has not become the reflection of either a great many students or an entire school, much less a party in France, for example. France could use a Manon as a dead republic looking for another replacement, which is not unusual in French history, of course. But there is no party of Manon among people trying to fashion une sixième, which we all know will exist, a sixth republic. And perhaps uh, America also is, has certain deficiencies. People are terribly dissatisfied with the situation, but the reflection on democracy or even an interest in thinkers on democracy is not great. We are greatly in need of it, but not aware of it. And hopefully we can do something to help that out. But we would have to get at this. Why is it that thinkers of the rank of Tocqueville and Manon, that is to say the 
an aristocrat and a scholar who were friends and partisans of liberalism and democracy rightly understood. How come they are not of the interest they should be, even when there begins to be a sense of the crisis of political thought and practice? As we now see in both France and America, the two modern democracies, the, the model regimes of the modern world. Wonderful, both of you. I was struck, Titus, when you picked up the ball. That's an American. <laughs> I introduced the nature of democracy. Carl said it had the dogmatic aspect, the social, and then you kind of filled in the social and then the idea. So that was a nice continuity in what we were saying. It does seem to me that in certain respects, our situation yours and mine, our situation, is comparable to the young Menants in the 60s and 70s. They were confronting communism abroad, but also within. We're confronting another kind of ideology within. So, you know, Rod Dreher is, I think, you know, correct, but he's not the only one pointing out that we live in a heightened ideological democratic time. And Menant knew that in the 60s and 70s. Then I would add one more in connection, how come he's not better known? He and a small circle, but it wasn't a small circle of people, um, they encountered a own. So let's say maybe you need a Strauss or you need an individual that kind of collects or provides a shelter or a bunch of people who are searching for political and philosophical sanity and wisdom in a mad time. And in the 70s, alone, one man provided that for all of France. It's just amazing. It is amazing. We one. And I would say, you know, I, this is hyper-hyperbolic, but one might say Strauss kept alive some kinds of intellectual sanity and philosophy. We need somebody else. <laughs> now, I think people like you and Carl and me, we've had great teachers and we're passing torches along, but it does seem to me that just based on these two historical examples, you need somebody who has pierced through and gotten some kind of public standing much more than Strauss. But going back to young Nantes in the shelter of Aron, he and many of his buddies, they were faithful to the glimpses of sanity and political philosophical wisdom that they saw. They rediscovered the liberal tradition that you said, you know, Tocqueville wasn't known for decades. Well, that's true. Nor was Constant, nor was Guizot. <laughs> you know, they were either ignored or typecast as defenders of bourgeois democracy, you know, the greatest epithet <laughs> uh, in this, uh, you know, in the 70s. So I think one thing we can, one kind of heart we can take from Pierre, and again, a number of his friends who started journals. They didn't do podcasts, that'll come later, but they started journals, you know, Commentaire, I think the single best political philosophy journal there is, you know, it has a few rivals, but I think it's the single best one, Commentaire. You have to know French, though. These people, they did their studies in this lost tradition of the thoughtful thinking about liberal democracy, whether it be Tocqueville or Guizot. And then thanks to Strauss, when he was brought over to Europe, the classical studies that all of these French trained, educated people had, the, the classical studies took on a new life. 
because Strauss just showed you just how damn radically exciting and relevant those old texts were. And, you know, he knew Greek and Latin, so he had greater access to the classics than I did when I was that age. But Strauss really was a huge animator for that. So you need a own, you need to be faithful to whatever light you're given. In this case, it was, you know, a tradition that had been lost of sober liberalism. And then the classics somehow or another got to become contributors and interlocutors in your own dialogue. And lo and behold, by the mid 80s, I'd say Pierre Minot had his mixture of that. I'm not going to date when I think you have kind of the mature Minot, but certainly by 86, 87, you know, those elements are self-conscious, they're present, and he's not just explored them, but he's sharing his discoveries. I'd also say, Titus, that in terms of thinking about Manant's overall reception and, and the fact that he's not as well-known as we'd like him to be, I don't think he's ever going to have the kind of impact that Strauss had. Strauss is such a, a special thinker, reorients you in, in so many different ways. I don't think you have that with Manant, but you know, like Tocqueville, Manat looks increasingly, you know, prophetic. I mean, anyone in Europe, for example, who feels that the EU project needs to be radically adjusted or dropped, I mean, maybe there's exceptions, but I, I think Manat's the most theoretically powerful, um, you know, voice for, you know, what is kind of crudely called Euroscepticism and points people back to the way democracy in modern times has to be connected to the nation state and how what is bound to emerge from the EU structure is a project of bureaucratic governance in the name of kind of a astral democracy, a kind of rights-driven democracy, but against real flesh and blood in assemblies and done by representatives actual democracy. So, I mean, I think that's going to look more and more prophetic, just the way that, that Tocqueville looked more and more prophetic compared to Marx, you know, when people started to realize, you know, that, yeah, you got to think about the social, Marx was right about that, but here was this earlier thinker, well, slightly earlier, who thought about the social in a way that was so much more supple and, and open to things besides economics, so, I mean, I, I do think Manat's day will come. And, you know, maybe if you want to tag on to that, Paul, I mean, the other big one, which is, of course, related to his criticism of the EU, in a way, it's the foundation of it, is his theory of political forms, which is so important. And, and so it really adjusts your thinking about things. I mean, just for, for those unfamiliar, I mean, the basic the quick and dirty of it is in the ancient times, you, there really were only two political forms that were relevant, the polis and the empire. You know, they were aware of tribes and even aware of bands, right? But Manat gives you an explanation for how in Western Europe, with dealing with the theological political problem and the political claims of the church, there emerged out of these national monarchies this new thing, the, na the nation state, which really became the matter upon which the liberal democratic regime was going to be built. To understand that, it, it revolutionizes your, your understanding of, say, the, 
the argument for the extended republic in, in Federalist 10. It obviously applies to the EU. It opens up a number of different avenues. And, you know, there's other thinkers that I think probably had glimmers of this theory before Manant, but Manant's really the first one to put it out there in a clear theoretical way. Say, yeah, you got to have your regime theory, but you've, you've got to have your theory of forms working alongside it. So I'm going on a, a bit, but I mean, there are a number of insights that Manant has that I think are going to stand the test of time. Yeah, maybe that should be our next topic. Paul, how about we talk then about the city of man? How about we talk about, as you say, the mature, the fully formed Manon? La Cité de l'Homme, the city of man, very much an echo of Augustine, <laughs> uh, came out in 1994. And it really is the culmination of what I call the first period of his thought from 72 to 94. However, it has a distinctive, if not unique, status among the five books of that period. So it's got the city of man. It's self-declared phenomenology of modern consciousness, i.e., and that sounds very theoretical or pretentious or French or something, but it just means self-conscious modern human beings say we're moderns. And he just wanted to know when did that form of human consciousness emerge historically and what were its contents? So it's a historical study, but it's a study in a much earlier French phrase of mentalités. Okay, so it's a study of modern consciousness. He divides the book into two parts, self-consciousness or how this self names itself and then how it articulates the world outside of itself. It does it as being a being in history, as a member of society and a member of a free market. So history, society, and then the economic order. And then how does it act in the world? How does it affirm itself in the world? And there are two components to that. Damn it, I've got my rights. And this is the consciousness of self that asserts its rights, that topples kings and dynasties and relegates God and his ministers to the private realm. So it's the assertion of the individual with rights. But even more deeply, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, it's the uh, self that says, I'm unfettered and ungood guided will. And the chief articulators of that are going to be Kant and Nietzsche. It's basically a devastating study of the main thinkers who articulated these forms of human consciousness and human agencies. So great studies of the paired sociologist Durkheim, who talked about social determinism, and Weber, who had methodological individualism or completely free choice of values. So now man, man is really found between social determinism and total arbitrariness. And so I will say kind of a regular threads through that great book is, what would the classics be saying about all this? And so uh, there are very yeah. discreet but very telling comparisons and contrasts between the classical political philosophical view of man and society and then either determinism or individualism. And then I would say 
the third element is Manant has some of his own distinctive, radical, and devastating critiques of modern consciousness and authoritative texts. So if you want to have Weber dismantled, read Manant on Weber. And the bottom line, Manant on Weber, and this will scandalize any number of sociologists or people, according to Manant, Weber did not even articulate a verifiable thesis. He had some impulses and some dislikes. He didn't like it when the sacred was banished from history or the social scene or human agency, a la Marx. And so he just kind of reasserted it. So City of Man, it's his most polemical book. It was read that way, and therefore people said, well, he just must be totally anti-modern. And then later, Manant had to say, no, 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 no. Here I was doing the theoretical and the radical, but I'm not doing the practical and the moderate. So fairly shortly after the Cité de l'Homme, well, he, he started the series of courses that became a world without politics. He Here's a different way of surveying modernity, you know, looking at its political articulations. The world beyond politics is another possible entryway into Manant because it just sort of gives you his view of the whole field of politics, you know, circa the beginning of the 20th century, but, but from a grounded in a very theoretical point of view. I will say he had finished the book, I think, two weeks before 9-11. So he paused the publication and then kind of reread it to see if anything needed to be changed in his text because of what had happened. And he read it and he said, no, not really. And so he's a modest man with tremendous talents, but he's a modest man. And he said, no, I think uh, my articulation holds water. Now, you you may want to add more about the Ummah. You may want to add more about terror or radical Islam, you may want to, and he'll do that in later books, including the one I translated in 26. But he thought his pre-9-11 survey and analysis held water. But he did add a preface for the English translation four or five years later, and he did do a nice comparison contrast in two pages of this foreword, where he kind of compared and contrasted the American response to 9-11 and the European response to 9-11, but rooted them in their two different experiences and understandings of democracy. I just have to tell you just real quick, one of the distinguishing features of European democracy was Holocaust guilt, and the 2004 version of European democracy, i.e. the EU, was haunted by the misdeeds of the nation state and said that you can't trust the people no more, so democracy has to be completely reworked. So he presented Europe in 2004, 2006 as hating itself. Well, that's where a large portion of the American population is today. So earlier, Titus and I were talking about the Americanization of Europe. It goes both ways. There's a chapter in A World Beyond Politics, Is There a Nazi Mystery?, and again, you know, mutatis mutandis, and you really need to emphasize the change. We would write something, is there a slavocracy mystery or something today? So I think these books, you know, they're brilliant in their time. They continue to be d- dense and illuminating. And in some cases, they kind of pick up 
intelligibility and illuminating power. So you, you use the word prophetic kind of the way Solzhenitsyn was because he saw so well these people, they knew the nature of things. They knew how unnatural ideology is or European construction that makes us angels and not parts of real bodies. <laughs> yeah, certainly 2020 will in, uh, in Europe more than America revealed how depoliticized democracy really is and indeed how you can settle entire populations into house arrest you know, taking the bodies away from democracy, literally. It's certainly the case that Manon's Euroscepticism has been proved right pretty much in every respect. And also, I think you're right that there is something to be said for the fact that certain European ideas, especially what the EU stands for, especially the notion of a bureaucratic, possibly world empire, that is to say something that breaches all the distinctions that are traditional, or the different borders. It was certainly much quicker in the EU that we saw elites created that no longer had loyalties to any specific community and did not thereby lose the desire to rule. Very important. And of course, that now that seems to be much truer of America than I think most of us would have said 20 years ago and or perhaps maybe even 10 years ago. And so the question of what kind of education these elites have and how do they think about things or what might it mean for a democracy to simply not have nations? Or on the other hand, as you're saying, his survey of democracy as a theoretical science, right? The sociology was largely the theoretical science of democracy. It did not aim to describe human phenomena apart from modern consciousness or however we will call it. And it too was therefore deeply invested in the education of an elite that would be fit for democracy. I don't think there's any reason to doubt the noble intentions of somebody like Max Weber, but I don't think that changes anything about the insanity of those ideas. There's another big connection, of course, between America and Europe at the elite level, since Weber was the most important sociologist to become famous in America. And so I think the more uh, one thinks of Manon, one sees that again and again he goes to this question of how does a modern regime function? How do we understand democracy? How do the elites of democracy understand it and therefore provide a kind of self-understanding for democracy? And so in a way in which is not possible in America, in France, Pierre Manon is a kind of teacher of politics. It is an inherently... A difficult situation since he is not a politician, as I said, not the founder of a party, not the inspiration of a party, not practical in the, in the ordinary understanding. And in America that is decisive, but in France it is not, precisely because intellectuals have a strange influence there. And that made many terrible things possible, but also certain wonderful things possible. Above all, somebody like Raymond Daron, who is unique for good judgment, Nobody has judged so well of so many events for so long in the 20th century. It's remarkable. But Manon has some of that as well, and therefore shows that it is in principle possible to teach politics without being a politician in the ordinary sense. And perhaps this may be a clue to an American problem now, that people complain, but there is no way to think about politics that could lead to organizations. This leads people to become ever more shocking in their statements, either out of desperation or out of a deepening conviction that only radical 
practical action is real, since moderate action would require the structure and the teaching of somebody like Manon that would then make, to some extent, events intelligible and patience reasonable. Without that, it isn't reasonable to be patient. In, in a certain sense, the, the ignorant man uh, is right. That is to say, he, is, he feels his powerlessness and the urgency of the moment and his mortality and his reputation, since there are elites humiliating him on a regular basis. What can we expect to follow from that? So it does seem like if Mana might be even more useful to people thinking about politics in America than would immediately seem from somebody whose concern has been almost always to understand the great thinkers in European politics and to try to investigate whether there is some way that Aristotle could sit in judgment of modern philosophers and reveal where they are lacking. That is to say, above all, where their claim to being realistic, scientific, or efficient is fraudulent. Yeah. Going back to the very first book with which we began seeing things politically, at one point his interlocutor says, you're not a politician, maybe you're a counselor to the prince, a la Machiavelli. And he immediately said, no, 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 no. And not because he didn't want to be tarred with a Machiavellian brush. He said, no, 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 that's the wrong way of, first of all, the politician won't listen to me, and then it'll just distort my thinking. But he said, uh, really, if you want to understand what my writings are, I think the closest thing he said was Aristotle's politics. And part of what he meant by that is, I just want to do a dispassionate regime's analysis in the full breadth, social, political, psychic, religious, the way the regime makes a whole of a society and some circumscription of humanity. So I want to do regime analysis. Then he'll do the modern philosophers and how they did that in their own circumstances. And so Machiavelli addressing the theological political problem, Hobbes, you know, the civil war, et cetera, et cetera. Then he does it himself, the ongoing threat of Soviet communism against liberal democracy, and then the progress and the excesses of democracy. And you're right, he does provide a great model for how to analyze a liberal democratic regime or, you know, a regime generally. And I'll just say that two things that he does when he's analyzing a contemporary situation, he always does it in terms of regime analysis. <laughs> so it's, he doesn't take a part. He wants the whole. He has a way that he divides it into parts. But following Tocqueville, he got this line from Auguste Comte, but he says every regime has statics, that is pretty settled articulations, and then it's got dynamics. Now, the dynamics ultimately are rooted in the soul, but they're also in the parts that have their own nature and logic. So, for example, the free market economy or representative government or whatever it is. When he does a regime analysis, he says today's architecture, its statics, have changed dramatically from 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And he really does a great job in France and in Europe, and a lot of our friends do it in America, saying today we no longer have the same architecture with the collapse of the media or the deep state or the administrative state. Those are all true architecture departures or changes. And then he looks at the dynamics, and he always starts with man, the political animal, therefore the logos animal. And so just like Socrates, he goes to the agora or reads the newspaper, and he listens to the prominent voices, 
and then you know does what every good Socratic or Lalarian or Titian or Scottian analyst does is let me unpack you know these debates their presupposition you know you fall into the ideological category you're in the defensive conservative posture so Menand I, he really can again provide a nice framework for analyze contemporary politics always starting with you know some normative notion of the modern regime and it, it'll differ from Republican France and constitutional America. Yeah, I mean, I think one way of putting it that might be useful for today, I mean, with 2020 kind of shaken a lot of foundations and just, I guess for me particularly, just a lot of things just look different after 2020. Just like things that I can't take as seriously as I once tried to. So we're in a moment where people, I think, are attracted to radical ideas and attracted to kind of the thinkers who are going to do a lot of drama talk and present it in a very kind of stark way. But I think, you know, just going back to Paul's, one of his earlier formulations, I mean, a theorist of the highest order like Manon, I mean, he gives you that kind of connection between the need to go radical and the need to remain in touch with moderate practical political thinking. You, you need both. You need to be ready to, to go to the roots of certain commitments and say, this ultimately isn't going to work or ultimately is always going to produce these kind of dynamics. But you have to have a way back to the good practical prudence of, of someone in the spirit of Aron or Aristotle, Montesquieu, et cetera. And I think careful readers will find there's a lot of radical ideas there. There's a lot of radical investigation of things that we've taken for granted in our modern society. But he's always looking for a practical, sensible way forward. I know it sounds like we're tooting our own horn here a lot, but I just, for listeners who have hung on this long, I mean, this is a moment where there's a great danger of of people coming to you and presenting themselves to you as get political wisdom quick merchants, you know? Here's your quick <laughs> access to, to getting into, you know, the heart of what's going on. And a thinker like Manant is the real thing. You know, don't hesitate to do some work with someone like Pierre Manant, and that is going to prepare you much more than just kind of grasping on to the latest voice who seems to you know, have the firm way of opposing all the bad things that are going on right now. No substitute for learning and wisdom. Indeed, especially in confused times, the first necessity is clarity. It's the only situation in which we may say that what is important takes precedence over what is urgent, even in practical things. A reorientation is necessary. And so, indeed, it's very important to realize that maybe we need a kind of radicalism in thought much more than in action, that we need to reorient our thinking. We don't need to burn things down or break up arrangements, at least not just yet. So the daring of thinking, you know, Manon takes second place to no one when it comes to a sustained intellectual attack on liberalism, on modern philosophy. But he is not a madman. That's a rare quality, and I think it's one that people need much more of. 
one has to assume that a thinker as serious as Manon wrote on what and in the way he did it for serious reasons. And therefore, we have also to take a chance on the possibility that people reading and thinking and talking about this stuff will lead them to become somewhat more daring in certain ways and more moderate in others. That is to say that he is a political teacher of politics, that he knows his business and people should trust him. We should do other conversations. We should treat some of these books and introduce them to the American audience, especially since so many of them have been translated and are potentially available and urgently useful for anyone who wishes to think clearly about why are people saying crazy things and why also some of the things that are happening seem very, very crazy, unpredictable, uh, as we were saying, even in the recent past. Where do these things follow from and how might we think about them? So, Paul, Carl, thanks a lot for joining me here. And I hope our audience has now a grasp of what Manon has written and thought about and what he thinks serious people should be studying in order to be serious, to to live up to their own moral and intellectual expectations of themselves as uh, men and citizens. And as I said, uh, we should have a series on Manon. It's the least we have to do as, as people who take this stuff seriously. That is to say, to help this work of learning about politics come along. And perhaps in the next conversation, we should try and talk about the Aristotelian side of Manon, what it means to see things politically or what it means to focus on practical reason. There's so much there. Amen. Really. Thank you, Titus, for the invitation. Carl, it was great to see you. Good luck at your ends. All the best. Okay, Carl, you know, enjoy the rest of your day. I will go and uh, get to bed. It's midnight here. Get to live out the day yet. So, okay, thanks. Uh, good luck with your writing and all the best to Michelle. Okay, thank you, Tidus. Good night. <laughs>